Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and joining me today is Alex Traps Chapala for a conversation about uncovering the story about Jordan B. Noble. Now, Jordan Bankston Noble is commonly known as the drummer boy of New Orleans. However, we're going to learn a little bit more about Jordan B. Noble because his five times great-grandson, Alex, will give clarity to his life and his legacy. Now, Alex Traps Chabala is a Bay Area-based historian and genealogist on a mission to help all black, indigenous, and people of color learn about their family histories in a safe, informative, and engaging way. He is a fourth-generation Bay Area native, deeply connected to his roots on the golf course. And I just love talking to him about those roots. Well, Alex is a black queer activist with a knack for disrupting harmful norms deconstructing anti-black ideas about our past, and facilitating healing by way of our ancestors' experiences. So let me just give a warm welcome to Alex Traps Chapala to research at the National Archives and beyond. And Alex, kick me for saying your last name wrong, okay? <laughs> welcome, Alex. <laughs> you got <laughs> Thank you so much, Bernice. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's been a dream to be on your show with you, and and it's been a long time coming. Thank you so much. You got the last name right, though. It's Chabala. You did it. All right. All right. So, Alex, help us understand, since you are the five times great-grandson of Jordan Bankston Noble, at what point in your life did you discover this information. Well, thank you for that, Bernice. I grew up knowing, you know, around Christmas time here in the Bay, um, my my great grandparents, which were Jordan Noble's uh, great grandchildren, I believe. I think I think that's the right count. Um, you know, they knew of they knew of Jordan, 
but they didn't really talk back then. They didn't talk too much about the specifics of the past. They just picked the parts that were shining and could be prideful. So around Christmas time, you know, there was a story of, you know, you know, the little drummer boy is, is your people. And that was kind of it. There wasn't much detail. Um, and, you know, we kind of all just shrugged it off. Um, and so by the time that I was in my teens and had started researching, everybody that knew about that little drummer boy had been, you know, long past. And growing up um, in Sacramento and in Vallejo, um, California, there was n- really not much shared from um, our history in New Orleans besides our, you know, our cultural traditions and so on and so forth. Um, but I was in high school my freshman year, and I actually came across um, the 1870 census with his son, Valerie, living next door with his family, and Jordan and all of his, fa- you know, all of his immediate family in the house with him, just one house above. And Jordan was listed as a police officer in 1870. I said, that's not common for a black man. This guy must be somebody. And so the first thing that I did was take to Google and start finding, you know, information about him. And I ran it past my aunt, who at the time was in her upper 90s um, here in in California. She's like, yeah, that was Pater Jordan. And he was so-and-so. And and she told me um, what she knew about his story, where I could see pictures of him, where I could find um, you know, his home and, and all of that. And so that opened up a, you know, that opened up a, a huge door in my research um, on his life and our family. Well, it is just so fascinating to know that you still had someone you could turn to to at least validate what you found in the 1870 census. But I want to know, well, I tell you what, why don't you, just tell us about this whole drummer boy issue. Where did it come from? And then we'll talk about some of the myths and the truths that you've uncovered in your research. Absolutely. So Jordan, Jordan Banks the Noble was a black man um, who was born in Augusta, Georgia, transported um, across the U.S. or around um, and through the Gulf Coast, we don't really know what route just yet, um, and taken to Louisiana in about 1812 with his mother, a black woman named Judith, who was enslaved as well. Um, his, his, his biological father um, was a white man named John Young Bankston, who was also a soldier in the War of 1812. And um, the family had moved its base from Georgia to the Florida parishes in Louisiana. Um, and from there, when the father died in the War of 1812, immediately afterwards, Jordan was several times um, be- before, between 1812 and the end of the battle um, in 1815. And he was sold, of course, to military officers. And as a result, as just a seven-year-old boy, um, he was forced um, unwillingly to be the drummer boy um, in the battle. And so immediately afterwards, he gained fame for basically, um, you know, beating the drum in this battle. And from there, I guess I could kind of get into the myth. So part of being a drummer boy, a drummer boy's role in old military history was they were the ones that basically, like, um, 
sent out the orders from the commanding officers. So they would beat their drums, and then all of the soldiers or other commanding officers would know where to move, what to do, what's going on on the battlefield. Um, and so it's actually a really dangerous role. Um, so, you know, the Brits are firing at the Americans, the Americans are firing at the Brits and so on and so forth. And one of the key things back then was, of course, to kill the drummer boy because then the communication would be off. And mm-hmm. so, you know, this little seven-year-old enslaved boy's life was in jeopardy every moment of this battle. Um, and so, you know, to herald him as a hero is kind of, it's, it's really controversial today because it wasn't something that he could have willingly um, said no to, um, but he showed talent for it. He showed skill. By the time that he was a teenager, he spoke three different languages, um, Spanish, French, and English. Um, and, you know, that, that talent definitely is what kind of led to this um, life of a bit of celebrity that he accumulated towards the end of his life. Um, to tell a little bit le- more about his story, um, Jordan ended up fighting it, or being a musician in the Seminole Wars in Florida, the second Seminole War to be precise, um, in which he was still enslaved. As a free man, he fought in the Mexican-American War. And then he also organized um, controversially both for the Confederacy, the Native Guards, as well as recruiting um, incredibly for free black men in New Orleans to fight on behalf of the Union after New Orleans fell to the Union. Um, and so that is a, is a lot of his military career. Um, at the t- during his lifespan, he had one of the longest military careers in American history. But because he was a black man and a former slave, that military career is contested, and it often isn't written about. Um, so that was one of the biggest things that struck me when I was a teen learning about his story um, was that this was a man that had done an incredible amount of work um, on behalf of this country, both enslaved and freed. He contributed incredibly to music history and to black history. And at that time, he didn't even have a Wikipedia page. And you couldn't find, um, nowadays, if you search for his name, you'll see an actual photo of him. Back then, it was a photo of someone completely different um, and then other misrepresentations. And so I thought out to change that um, with basically by dispelling the myths of, about his life. Well, one of the things and, that you mentioned, you said when he was free, but he was also mm-hmm. enslaved. So when was he freed? So Jordan was freed um, in the late 1830s. Um, he was freed, actually, at the time of his, that he was freed, he, was, he had actually been in Florida um, when, his, when his last owner um, was taken ill, um, and Jordan was able, based on the income that he was earning, um, he was able to, to secure the freedom for not only himself, but his wife, his children, his sister-in-law, and his nephew. Um, who also is the is one of the ancestors of a few notable Black New Orleanians. Um, so he was freed at that time, and then um, following that, his family um, moved to Carrollton, um, which hadn't really been incorporated into New Orleans just yet. Just yet, but they lived for about a generation in Carrollton, 
Um, and immediately, Jordan and his family, all members of his family, had to get to work as free people. Okay, and so he moved to Carrollton, which we know where that's located now. And then what kind of work did he do? So Jordan, um, even while enslaved, he was considered a high-valued slave um, because of his, like, his trilingual abilities, his musical abilities. He could read and write immediately coming out of enslavement, um, which we know based on the documents on the court proceedings and other things um, that immediately followed the, his emancipation or manumission. Um, but also, he was a music teacher. So as a musician, he taught music to tons of folks around the city. But because of the way that New Orleans' anti-blackness worked, um, he was mostly teaching to other free black uh, families and free black schools. And so that was where he really started to make his stance. And of course, because he had so many ties and connections to the U.S. military, particularly the 7th Infantry, um, which was oftentimes based out of New Orleans, um, he was able to work, you know, with the U.S. government or with the U.S. military for years. And, um, and as a result, that was another way that he supported himself. But one myth about Jordan Noble is that because he was a celebrity, that he lived, you know, in relative peace or was like just kind of, you know, just in, you know, the middle class. And he wasn't. The man and his family were poor for the majority of his lifespan. Oh, okay. And so I want to go back to you said he taught music. So was he a self-taught musician, or did he actually have music lessons? Um, So from what we've been able to find, um, based on a contemporary account and based on um, some of his own writing and things that he passed down to members of his family um, was that he was taught drumming in particular um, by one major that was there in um, New Orleans at the time that he arrived. And basically from that, he was encouraged to, you know, continue this musical tradition. But he, in his writing, he does mention that he had a knack for music um, early on, and so that I believe um, just yeah, I would love to believe that he was also self-taught and just had that talent. And one of the things that um, is really important to note here is really what really what belongs to an enslaved person. I think that's really an, an important question because their talent, their knowledge, and their skills, while that was theirs, um, it didn't really belong to them, it belonged to their to their owners. So okay. throughout Jordan's life, you kind of see that, especially after his freedom, it still kind of has to be signed off in a way by other white folks involved because people were always trying to capitalize off of what he knew, how he worked, and how he moved through the world. Um, and you see him taking some agency, um, you know, throughout his life at different points, but there's always someone who kind of had their back, their hands in his pocket in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. And while you're telling this story, what's you know going around my head is where are you gathering this information? I want to know some of the resources that you're tapping into 
to really tell what you would consider the true story about uh, your five times great grandfather. So I I love that question so much, Bernice, because so often with our ancestry work, um, we follow what I've I've been calling it the genealogical canon. So you know the vital records, <laughs> birth, marriage, and death, and then a census here, and then maybe a city directory, um, and then maybe an obituary. Um, and I think that that's great. That's the standard. Um, but we have to move outside of the canon, especially as black researchers. And so with Jordan, he was the first ancestor that I found of my own um, that, I was, that I realized that in order to really colorize his life, I had to move outside of that canon. And so I used um, uh, journals that were in that were in universities throughout the South, one even in the North. Um, I, used, I used contemporary accounts from members of the military to really get an understanding of what was going on politically and um, in the military history of it to understand his function a little bit better and the way that they moved. Um, mm-hmm. And through that is, is also kind of painful because you start to see how much this country was invested in slavery. Um, and then also... I used a lot of the records around Louisiana. Louisiana is an incredible place to research. Um, the Notorial Archives was an incredible place to start. Um, Gwendolyn Midlow Hall's database was also one of the first stepping stones of understanding um, where his life was in, in enslavement. And then also um, I used some of the Catholic records and probate, or sorry, succession records from and in and around um, Orleans Parish and some of the other parishes that he lived and resided in, those were um, the key sources that I needed to really track his life um, early on in particular. Um, But there's been, I've used some of everything for him. Newspaper accounts really did fill in um, a lot of the gaps. But unfortunately, because Jordan um, was a man that, had a bit of celebrity. He wasn't always mentioned by his legal name. So he went by, he, he didn't necessarily go by this, but he was called this by especially white um, contemporaries, um, old Jordan by the time that he got to be about 50 years old. And then he was called the drummer boy, you know, at 80 mm-hmm. something years old. And so you had to look those things up. Um, but one of the things that I learned to stay far, far away from was information that was written in books and magazines and periodicals, modern periodicals, and, um, because they were just riddled with misinformation. People tried to whitewash his story. They tried to claim that his mother was a white woman. They tried to claim that his father may have been a black man. They tried to claim that he was from the West Indies. They tried to claim that he was born free, that he was granted his freedom by Andrew Jackson himself. Um, And that was, you know, completely, completely untrue. And oftentimes in scholarship around Jordan Noble's life, they forget that this is somebody who lived, breathed, and had a family. And, in fact, he had a family that not only um, exists today, but a family that he openly expressed love and care um, in, this, in these very precise ways, um, ways that positioned the family um, to move through the world with pride that we carried 
to this day. And it wasn't until um, some of this research that I started learning how, um, you know, deeply entrenched his story actually was into our lives. Even if we didn't grow up knowing his full name, we knew who he was, and therefore we knew who we were based on that. And it's just wonderful because I'm just feeling your pride uh, and that he did leave a legacy. Even as you said, you didn't know his full name. You knew about him. Your family knew about him. And it's so interesting, though, that you said, well, maybe I didn't, you know, you're not going to read a lot about what other people said because it sounds like they were making up information and presenting this as truth. But you uncovered that some of this just was not true. Absolutely. And so at this point in your life, I mean, how long has it taken you to feel that you now have uncovered the true story about Jordan B. Noble? Honestly, Bernice, I'm still finding things about his life that always surprises me. Um, But I will say that at this point, at this point, it's been now a decade, over a decade since I've been researching him. And we have enough um, material to really get the gist of it. Um, I would say that Jordan Noble, I, I like to call him a hero in his own right, but he also was complicated, incredibly complicated. The time period was complicated. His descendants are complicated, and the people he interacted with were complicated. And so it's my job as not only a, a professional historian, and as a genealogist, and as his ascendant, to make sure that I don't oversimplify his life, that I don't relegate his life to, you know, the margins of just jazz history or second-line history um, or to the margins of military history or to the margins of just my family history. This man made an impact on global music history. He made an impact on black history. He made an impact on American history. And it still is worthy to be told, and it has to be told. Um, I love that that when I discovered him, I was about 14 or 15. And according to um, the narratives at that time, that was the same age that he was when he was stepping into this role as, quote, unquote, Andrew Jackson's drummer boy. Um, and at the time, I, you know, in that time of self-discovery, you know, oftentimes we do look for look towards our families or our ancestry to really make sense of ourselves. And I didn't see too much of myself in Jordan. In fact, mm-hmm. Jordan was, was, you know, he was heralded as this hero and all of this stuff. But then now I'm like, whoa, I got to spend, I got to stand in the steps that he, he walked in New Orleans in 2015 um, during the bicentennial of the Battle of New Orleans. Yes. I was invited yes. down. Um, and it was the first time that Jordan Noble was mentioned um, by name in any events surrounding the Battle of New Orleans um, it, at that large of a scale. And it was also my first time being that deep in the limelight. I had breakfast and brunch with the lieutenant governor at the time. I um, helped co-curate. Um, an exhibit at the Louisiana State Museum where his drum was on display and had been in the care of for over 100 years. 
a museum that 40, 50 years ago, my family, his descendants, wouldn't have had access to on any given day, right? So there was a significance of going and basically reclaiming his name, setting the record straight, and letting all know, you know, who he was. And to this day, there are still people that even though, you know, I have spoken out and his descendants are incredibly tight now, um, there are still people who find it their business to rewrite his story to fit their narrative. And Mm -hmm. so it's uncomfortable and unsettling, but that's the purpose that I walk in is to make sure that we dismiss that. So my first publication um, is set to be published actually next year um, on Jordan Noble's life and his descendants, along with Dr. Leslie Harris. Um, and so I look forward to the world being able to fully learn and read about his story. And Alex, I certainly look forward to to reading his story and also celebrating with you the fact that you have published this story for all of us to really know about Jordan Banks the Noble. As you have mentioned, his life was complicated, and you don't want to simplify. You want us to really understand as much as we can about Jordan Noble. But I do have one question for you, and I want to take it back for a moment to Augusta, Georgia. And you mentioned that's where he was born. So tell us, how did you uncover his birth? And at what point did he end up in Louisiana? I know you said something at the very beginning, but just kind of recount for us. How did you uncover his birth and the name of his mother? Yeah, so the name of his mother had been forgotten by our family history. There was some story that kind of muddled um, his mother's name with actually his mother-in-law's name, um, who family tradition, like, passed on really well um, information about about that side of our family. Um, but the way that I found out about Jordan Noble's mother's name was his, with the documents of enslavement that he was written, um, that they were both written on. And all of those transactions um, detailed clearly what his mother um, who who she was, at least enough on record, um, and then also what her skills were and where she was a native of. Um, so her his mother actually had been had been an enslaved woman from Virginia um, who was born in the late 1700s, and she was transported from Virginia to Georgia. And at this point, the circumstances around that are a little obscure. Um, because okay. I haven't been able to find her original owners, um, and actually, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, it delayed a lot of the research that was planned around um, her life. Um, but his mother was transported to around Augusta. Um, I think that for, Jor- for Jordan throughout his life, it was easiest to say that they were from Augusta um, uh-huh. instead of the exact location because it was the nearest major town. Um, but the the family actually resided around Clark County, Georgia, um, in the surrounding area. And so um, Jordan and his mother were part of a larger enslaved community. And I think that that part is actually really important to keep in mind 
by the time that Jordan was born, there were living in the community, there was there were several enslaved Africans. And by Africans I don't mean children of Africans or grandchildren of Africans. I mean these are recently imported African people um, who had their own cultural and musical tradition that was, I I won't say as thriving as African traditions were able to in New Orleans, but in their own shape around Georgia, around Savannah and Augusta and so on and so forth, um, and the Sea Islands. But a lot of times with the whitewashing of Jordan's musical tradition, because he did practice classical music and military music, People often, Uh you know, go ahead and say, okay, well, that's just white. But, you know, we have to understand the tradition of of black music, right, and the history of black music. Um, So I I would like to believe that, you know, in Jordan's early life, before leaving Augusta, he was familiar with his his African tradition as well. There has been DNA evidence of descendants of some of these folks um, that we found amongst my own DNA, but also several of the elder noble family descendants as well. And so we've been able to trace that. And so there's not a doubt in my mind that, you know, he was familiar with where he came from. Coming from coming to a place like Louisiana, I can only imagine how incredibly different and shocking that must have been for young Jordan, right, um, and his mother. But all that being said, um, he was definitely not Creole. He was not considered Creole by Creoles. And he wasn't considered Creole by Americans. Um, and so, you know, and, 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 and I guess for any listeners that aren't familiar with the structure of New Orleans during that time, New Orleans was divided into these different class and racial structures. And I know that you know this well, Ms. Bernice, but just for our listeners, um, of course you had Creoles who were there before the American purchase just, prior, just a few years prior to Jordan's arrival in 1812, um, and you had the black folks and mixed-race folks. You had people from Haiti or San Domingue and Cuba um, and the West Indies that were there already. And then you also had the new Americans and their Americanized enslaved people. And Jordan was Jordan fit and his mother fit in that later category. So coming there, even as someone who was procuring this freedom, and someone who, you know, reached this level of celebrity, and even someone who inevitably had to learn how to speak French or French Creole, who married an African Creole woman um, and had technically Creole children um, and mingled with other Creoles, he definitely knew where his place in that society was. And he broke many of the conventions of it. But at the same time, by saying that he was from Augusta, Georgia, um, was clearly a class indicator as well. Jordan could have easily tried to, like, class pass and, you Uh know, be more assimilated into Creole identity. Um, But because I think that because there may have been a pride of where he came from, almost like a branding as well, he, Uh you know, continuously made sure that people knew who and where he was. And then there also, at the time, I mean, people praise and, you know, people praise and kind of glamorize Creole identity today. But early on, that was not always something, you know, they were, be, they were becoming a colonized minority in their own city. So by another advantage to Jordan was, you know, 
acknowledging, because he was so, he was closely associated with some whites, um, acknowledging that he was not like those people over there, those Creoles over there, um, he also had a little bit more of an advantage working with some of these American elites. So there is all kinds of things at play in his identity and in his family's identity as well. Wow. Yes, indeed. So I want you, since we're getting close to the to the end of the show, to share what you would consider some some lessons learned in your research journey and anything else you feel it would be helpful for people who have found ancestors like you, your five times great grandfather, and they find documents and they kind of question, you know, these stories, are they real? What would you recommend to them? Absolutely. I would recommend that, first of all, you build your own understanding of your ancestors. Don't really let any one narrative shape how you view and feel your ancestors' lives. If that makes sense, don't read anything and say, okay, you know what, that's exactly how this person was. Because oftentimes these records that we, that we see on our ancestors are only snapshots into their lives. Mm-hmm. Think of yourself as this complicated, full being that has, you know, journeyed far, stayed close, made mistakes, made success, whatever the case is. Um, And think about your ancestors more so in that light. Humanize them. Understand their complexities. Um, And then piece all of this other information to kind of fill in that gap. Um, And then also, don't put your ancestors on pedestals. Just like I say, you know, Jordan is this famous person and was and is arguably one of the most notable black people at that time, especially during Reconstruction, I still don't want to put him on a pedestal because I feel like he does not need my protection or my pedestalizing. I can be proud to be his grandchild and his descendant. I am because he was. Um, But I also can understand that this man made mistakes. Like it's I can I can assume what a political debate between Jordan and I would look like today, and it probably wouldn't be too pretty. Just like with his <laughs> grandchildren that I that I'm familiar with, they're not mm-hmm. always that pretty, right? So mm-hmm. you know, humanize your ancestors. Understand that they were complicated. Understand that they were shaped by their time as well. And then where you find their legacy, where you find their impact on the world, interact with that, challenge that, embrace it, whatever you need to do, um, but don't stay stagnant with their stories. That is, um, the, the, to, to summarize that answer, that, that, that answer, do not stay stagnant with your ancestors' stories. Tell them, record them, and challenge them. Oh, I love it. I love it. And you know, I always end my show with, uh, your ancestors left footprints. Well, everyone, Mm -hmm. as Alex has just shared with you all, he has followed those footprints all over the place, and he has admitted, you know, he's not going to put his ancestor on a pedestal because he doesn't feel he needs to do that. However, everyone has a story to be told. 
And why not let you be the one to tell that story once you've found that information? And so, Alex, I want to just thank you so much for coming on today. I have just enjoyed listening to you tell the, tell the story. What you have uncovered, I look forward to reading your book. And everyone else, I look forward to you joining me next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and thank you so much for tuning in to the show. Bye-bye, Alex. Bye, Bernice. Thank you so much.